You're listening to Oh No Lit Class. Mostly dead authors, fresh takes. Ruining required reading, one book at a time. Oh No Lit Class, the podcast that says shipping Achilles and Patroclus is out, shipping Dante and Virgil is in. We're sexy literature tastemakers. Make it happen. I'm Megan. I'm RJ. And I'm Kate. You are Kate. You're, you're Kate Bowers Willinga? Willinga. Yeah, it's a Dutch yeah. thing. Willinga. It's, it's very good. Um, all around cool person and host of the podcast Ignorance Was Bliss. And you're here because we at Oh No Lit Class have realized that podcast listeners don't want to hear Shakespeare goofs or learn which author was super horny. The answer is all of them. They want to hear about crime and murder and dark and terrible deeds that actually happened in the real world. So we are now a true crime podcast, which is why we are reading... In Cold Blood, Truman Capote. Now, which of the Golden Book authors are the horny ones? <laughs> oh, oh, T- Tibor, Tibor, whatever his name was. <laughs> oh, Tibor. Tibor was the horniest. All right. <laughs> I mean, anything that Big Bird shows up in, I am certain Big Bird tells my kids all their bad habits. Big Bird is truly the horniest Muppet. <laughs> he's on Sesame Street. He's oh, on what Muppet. do you call them? Just puppets then? Big Bird. But is he a puppet if he's not a Muppet? He's a Muppet of a man. He's not a very manly Muppet. Well, he's manly enough. So we figured uh, we may as well get someone, you know, who's at least, as you yourself put it, true crime adjacent. That is me. Right next to it. It's right there. <laughs> it's just out of frame. And uh, adding to your bona fides is your experience as a forensic psychologist, a, a, a crime brain person well that's the thing is that i don't qualify as true crime and i don't understand that because i've actually worked with actual criminals in an actual prison but apparently that's not true crime no 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 true crime is uh sitting around drinking wine talking about grizzly murders and having a giggle it's tragedy porn it is and we're gonna talk about that and it's, it's gonna be great so in Cold Blood is considered one of the most masterful literary nonfiction crime novels, as well as an early pioneer of the genre itself. And so, did you guys have to read this in school? And we're going to start with the most obvious one. Hell no. No. Never. Never ever. What are we going to get to the novelization of Face Off? Never. I read that one. Um, so when did you, when did, did you read it like in school or just like on your own or? I read it in school. Yeah, but not until my doctorate. Oh, okay. Wow. I think my brother was telling me he was very excited for this episode he re- didn't read it till college i remember it was one of like three summer reading options that we had in high school actually and i didn't pick it because it was about real life murder and i was and continue to be a giant baby it's pretty bad i mean in terms of just it's i mean this is you talk about sort of pioneering a field this is pioneering murder porn this is it this is sort of the first big tragedy porn book that's out there it's pretty explicit it is pretty explicit but what so what i think is inch more interesting about it than like the crime itself having you know read articles and, and seen movies about the whole deal and and things and now that i've actually read the book i feel like the story surrounding it 
is more interesting than the book itself, however well-written it is, because it's such a wild premise that Truman Capote, fantastically gay author and playwright, hears about these brutal murders in rural buttfuck Kansas and is like, I must know more! And uh, he goes there, he brings his BFF, Harper Lee, on the grounds that she's pretty Southern and also not gay, although as we discussed in our uh, To Kill a Mockingbird episode, which I think is episode 25. Lee's sexuality is a bit of a gray area, but I digress. He then, with the speed of a modern true crime podcaster, we're just going to be picking on him the whole time, (laughs) he quickly loses journalistic objectivity and gets way too involved in the goings-on to the point where many say it affected the contents of the book itself. He may have fallen in love with one of the murderers, although that, as far as I know, remains just a rumor, along with another potentially even wilder rumor that he refused to testify in defense of the accused on the grounds that if they were convicted and hanged, it would make for a better ending, which, like, fuck, dude. This is why, okay, this book is one of the examples of why I am not true crime. I could be. I could do that. It's gross. (laughs) <laughs> that's my clinical that's my clinical formulation <laughs> is that it's great because it really as much as he sort of dwells in like what the fields look like and you know whether it rained or not and you know though he couldn't just say it rained right he had to what what the early early on it's like the second page of the book he talks about droughtless beneficence i'm like dude you could just say it rained that year got it but anyway he really dwells on the nastiness of the crime but specifically from the criminal's point of view and i don't like that yeah it's it's something and it would definitely have like a massive influence on you know that genre of literature that was to follow but i think the biggest thing is kind of separating fact from fiction is a very difficult business in this book and the way that uh, capote makes it more so by the way how he chooses to like present and frame things like you said that so much of it is kind of from the murderer's perspective and uh, i'm probably going to spend more time talking about that stuff than like the actual fucking book i'm right there with you that like the book just gives a springboard for this idea of the lowest common denominator. And it's more interesting as far as the masses are concerned to talk about the bad guy and the grossness and the the mean, horrible ickiness of it all than it is to focus on the impact, not so much on the people because, you know, spoiler alert, they're dead. But <laughs> <laughs> See, every, everyone listening... Sorry. The, the family sorry, sorry. is dead. They're, they're, super, they're super dead. Now you just ruined it for everyone. I'm, You're I'm so sorry. <laughs> I, am, I am shamed. Uh, but they don't, there's no attention to like the impact that it had on the family, the impact really that it had on the town, you know, the, the actual why this is bad to do. I'm going to disagree with you slightly there with talking about the impact it had on the town. Because I think he does, he does go, he does go to that. But we'll get there before, before yeah. we get to, to any of that. RJ? Do your best to to separate fact from fiction as you tell us of the man, the myth, the one of a handful impressions you could do with anything approaching competency, Truman Capote. Oh, so he wasn't born Truman Capote. Uh Uh-oh. He was born Truman struck this persons. Then he was born on September 30th, 1924 and died August 25th, 1984. What an ominous year. Not 1984. So True was born in New Home of the Saints, Big Nays, and Big Daddy. Big Daddy? Yeah, not that Big Daddy. I'm talking about the one that stole Ralph Wiggum from regular size Daddy. <laughs> that Big Daddy. Wow. Amplified. That's Amp a, it up. I mean, I, I, I guess we haven't had a uh, we haven't had a deep Simpsons pull in a while, so I guess I'll give that you that. That might be one of my favorite Simpsons characters, <laughs> old Big Daddy. 
So True was born to Lily May Falk, a 17-year-old girl at the time, and salesman Archulus Persons. Archulus? Archulus. Okay, I was. it sounded like you were saying Archulus. Archulus, like Archulus. a fucking Greek-ass name. Yeah, persons. Great first name, last name. You can't always get both. I always have a hard time with last names that are also nouns. Like, be a name. Don't be a noun. So, persons. I don't... Anyway, sorry. Sorry, sorry. Go. (laughs) (laughs) I kind of like that, though. There's a t-shirt there. (laughs) Be a name. Don't be a noun. I mean, commit. (laughs) So, when he was four, his parents divorced. So, Lily May was a hardened 21-year-old with a four-year-old son and no man. Aw. So, she moved with True to live with her family in Monroeville, Alabama. Monroeville was home to about a thousand people at the time and had a population density of about 90 people per square mile. So it was pretty rural. (laughs) One of his mother's relatives True took uh, the strongest liking to was Nanny Rumbly Falk. Excuse? Nanny Rumbly Falk. These names are amazing. They sound like they're... They sound like they're made up for, like, a fucking Capote or, or, like, To Kill a Mockingbird or something like that. These are fantastic. He said of this lovely woman, whom he supposedly loved very much, quote, Her face is remarkable, not unlike Lincoln's craggy, like that, intended by the sun and wind. Mm. <laughs> Pure love and poetry. Hey, Megan, have I told you how you, you remind me of Lincoln's suppleness <laughs> lately? <laughs> You know, not not lately, and I've been feeling very neglected. That's almost gross. Like, supple is apparently one of those words I, I don't recently, like. Supple's a Like, moist. Yeah. Yeah, I recently watched Daniel Day-Lewis and Lincoln, and the whole time I'm thinking, Megan! <laughs> I've, been, I've been told. Mm-hmm. You son of a bitch. While in Monroeville, True met a gal by the name of Harper Lee. Lee decided to turn True into a character in her novel To Kill a Mockingbird. True was Dill. Well, because she turned literally everyone in her life into a character in To Kill a Mockingbird. You can go back, listen to our episode on To Kill a Mockingbird, but quickly, Dill was Jim and Scout's Biffle. He was also unloved by his parents and was raised by his mom's relatives. All this sounds quite familiar. Hmm. How queer. Hmm. Speaking of... True, was known for marching around (laughs) with a dictionary and notepad in hand starting at around the age of five. That's adorable. He moved on from defining words and things onto writing fiction by the age of 11. His shit was solid and hard-hitting. It got him the nickname Bulldog, which probably had nothing to do with that mug of his. (laughs) Probably. (laughs) Probably. Probably. Although it's really funny to to think of that being attributed to him in his adulthood. (laughs) Just a feisty little bulldog. This opens up a debate. Which bull was or is the better writer? Bulldog or Pitbull? Who has given us such poetic lines, such as... God damn it. Look up in the sky. It's a bird. It's a plane. Nah, it's it's just just me. me. Ain't a damn thing changed. Can we go one episode without referencing Pitbull? Excuse me, Megan. You've stopped. Live in hotels... Swing on plane, blush to say, money ain't no thing. Club jumping like LeBron. Now, Voli, order me another round, homie. We about to climb wild, because it's about to go down. It's about to go down. Exquisite. You need to do one of those, you know, those those games that they have where it's like, was this said by like, was, was this Truman Capordi yeah, or Pitbull? That was like, uh... 
that quiz where it was like Shakespeare or Drill from Twitter. And some of them were a little hard. So yeah, but Pitbull or Capote. <laughs> yeah, which one? <laughs> Who's the better artist? Oh, God. Yeah, if I'm at the club, Pitbull. I, hey, we never got to experience Truman Capote at the club. You don't know that. <laughs> Uh, he doesn't seem like he has those club bangers in him. I know DJ Kate, True. Kate has a couple of uh, choice choice quotes from the man. Well, not so much. Yeah, well, quotes, but but sort of the phrases. Okay, so was this Pitbull or Capote? Timber. Yeah, that versus droughtless beneficence. <laughs> yeah, I I think I remember that line where he's like. I, I sweat magnificence, droughtless beneficence. <laughs> <laughs> wow. Or or he he did talk about it at one point. Which one is this? Still no sign of dick. <laughs> I mean, it could be either. Um, Mr. 305. I'm saying steep and swollen grain elevators. Only one of these gentlemen is referred to as Mr. Worldwide. I'm just saying. <laughs> it's a hard one. Tawny infinitude. <laughs> oh, my boy's got attitude. Tawny infinitude. Right? I mean, Dale. It's not. Dale. It's not. One of them's also bilingual. As far as I know, the other one's not. You don't. You don't know whether or not Truman Capote was bilingual. No. Well, that's that's a failing on on your your research part. Could have been. All right. Please, no evidence please, of it. Please, for the love of God, take us past Pitbull. <laughs> Can I ever? Really do that? No. So True be- uh, began submitting his writing to competition for children when he was around the age of 12. Now, this might sound impressive, but he was beating other tykes. I could beat 12-year-olds, too. But if he was also a 12-year-old, it's impressive. You're a grown man. How the fuck do they know how old Why do you want to beat 12-year-olds at a writing competition? Maybe I'm just a hard-boiled street kid with street smarts. Well, you, if you want to beat children, go play Fortnite. Hmm. <laughs> Anyway, beating the other tykes mattered a lot to True, who said, quote, I was writing really sort of serious when I was about 11. I say seriously in the sense that, like other kids go home and practice the violin or the piano or whatever, I used to go home from school every day and I would write for about three hours. I was obsessed by it. Imagine if he lost. I don't, I don't know. Pitbull might not have had the mentor he wound up having in spirit. Oh my gosh. <laughs> you never know. And <laughs> You never know. Was Pitbull alive in 1984? Yeah. Uh, yeah, yeah, because he's like, yeah, we looked up the other day. What is it? He's like only like 38 or something. Yeah, so. <laughs> he was there. He's a, he's a rough goddamn thing. Capote might have actually been his mentor. Whoa. Mm-hmm. Deep. Let's see. When was Pitbull born? Oh, God. We're doing this again. We did this like literally an episode <laughs> or two ago where we looked up Pitbull's age and went, huh? Yeah, he was born in 1981. So, so. See? Yeah. He, he was a ripe old three. <laughs> There's three years to get a lot of training in there. I hate this. He has a mantle passed down, and we're going to talk about it. He might actually have a piece of Truman on him. Wow. Oh, uh, <laughs> uh, we're going to get to this, apparently, uh, and no one except me in this room knows. No, but I guess we will. So in 1932, Mama True met a man, a man by the name Capote. Jose Garcia Capote, the two of them married. He adopted Truman, and Truman was anointed, or re-anointed, Truman Garcia Capote. I'll take that over Strutfus Persons any yeah, day of the week. Definitely an improvement. Now, New Daddy True wasn't perfect, however. He was charged with embezzling, and the family lost all their money as a result of the prosecution. The family hung around in New York a bit longer before moving to Greenwich. 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 <laughs> Greenwich, Connecticut. There, True attended Greenwich High School. He wrote for the Greenwich High School newspaper, The Green Witch. Ah, ha, 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 ha. Double thumbs up, man. 
True's formal education ended when he was 18 and finished up high school after the family moved back to New York. After graduating, he worked as a copy boy for The New Yorker. He said of the job, Not a very grand job, for all it really involved was sorting cartoons and quipping newspapers. Still, I was fortunate to have it, especially since I was determined never to set a studious foot inside a college classroom. I felt that either one was or wasn't a writer, and no combination of professors could influence the outcome. I still think I was correct, at least in part in my own case. He was fired from the job because he pissed off Robert Frost. <laughs> Deservedly so. That's amazing and so, I love it. Here's the story and how it goes. Capote and Frost just so happened to be staying at the same inn in Vermont at the same time. Frost was giving a reading of his poetry and the manager of the inn cajoled all the guests to attend, including True. Well, True was feeling ill and declined. The manager wouldn't take no for an answer, so True went and sat in on the reading. In the middle of the performance, True got up and walked out, wanting to go back to his room. Apparently, this led Frost to throw his book over True's head and yell something along the lines of, Who do you think you are? What's a Truman Capote anyway? Just because he wasn't feeling well and had to, like, bow out? Oh, True says he wasn't feeling well. We don't know. That's the dead entire dead. story. That's anyway, word got back to the New Yorker and they cut ties with True, who was just a copy boy at the time. Capote said of Frost later in life that he was, quote, the meanest man who ever drew breath, an old fake dragging around with a shaggy head of hair and followed by pathetic old ladies from the Midwest. Wow. Where were the pathetic old ladies that followed Capote from? <laughs> the coast. Yeah. <laughs> the Hamptons. <laughs> That is amazing. That is a very good story. I thought it was going to lead somewhere very different. Like, if he was sick, that, like, he went there and he threw up on Robert Frost. Got up and walked out, and Robert Frost threw a book at him. How fucking insecure can you get, Robert Frost? So, after that job, Truman focused on his short story writing. He wrote continuously, which led him to winning the O. Henry Award in 1948, when he was 24. Is that a- wait, O. Oh, that's a candy bar. It well, is. It's, it's the gift of the Magi guy, and it's also- a candy bar, and did we research that there was no affiliation when we did our Christmas episode? Oh, yeah. yeah. <laughs> Sadly, you do not win an O. Henry bar when you win the uh... O. Henry Awards. <laughs> to be quite honest, I'd settle for Three Musketeers myself. I, yeah. I know, I know. You suck out the nougat like a weird little hamster. <laughs> oh my god. <laughs> I am totally, totally not assessing you forensically right now. I just want to be clear with that. She absolutely is. I like the is. creamy center. You're mm. the worst. Mm. So, True had his work published in Harper's, Mademoiselle, The Atlantic Monthly, and The New Yorker. Given his successes, True was accepted to Yado. Do you know what Yado is? Not a fucking wow. clue. If you don't know Yado, which, here's the you thing, Megan. You didn't give Kate a chance. Kate, Kate might know I have no idea. No, uh-huh. don't give Kate a chance. Kate's got no idea. <laughs> I use my forensic skills to assume. <laughs> Please, assess me reverse. All we are saying is don't give Kate a chance. <laughs> <laughs> so if you don't know Yado, which here's the thing, Megan, has nothing to do with my favorite Star Wars characters, Yoda and Yaddle, surprisingly enough. <laughs> you got it in there. Is a colony for artists that, quote, according to them, nurtures the creative process by providing an opportunity for artists to work without interruption in a supportive environment. Basically, it's a cult that lives in northern New York and they invite you to come to your artist thing for a little while. Where where in northern New York? What's, do you know the town? I want to join this fucking artist cult. That sounds great. I have to look that up. Y-A-D-O? Yeah. yeah. It is. 
Oh, I think it's two D's. Oh, two D's. Saratoga right. Springs. There you go. Yeah, 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 yeah. My uh, my very best friend from elementary school onward lives in Saratoga Springs. Can <laughs> she can she get me into this writer cult? <laughs> you can apply. I can find out. I can ask him. They they, they accept year round. All right. Sure, uh, look into this. Some other Yado alums include James Baldwin, Leonard Bernstein, Langston Hughes, Flannery O'Connor, Sylvia Plath, and Megan's favorites, Philip Roth and David Foster Wallace. Maybe I don't want to go to Yaddo. <laughs> maybe, maybe not. So this led True to write his first novel, Other Voices, Other Rooms. Perhaps the most memorable thing about this novel was not anything written between the pages, but rather what was printed on the back of the book jacket. A very saucy photo of Truman looking into the camera. It caused a titter among those who saw it. In particular, a young Andy Warhol basically jizzed all over himself and wrote True a number of fanboy letters wanting to get to know his sweet, sweet ass. Huh. You can look the photo up. It's a, very, a, a very saucy. You say saucy about lots of things. You say saucy about middle-aged bearded men sort of glaring into the camera, which, I mean, is a thing in its own right, but saucy is not quite the word I, w- I would give that. Saucy. Show me the saucy. All right, you know what? He is giving the camera a saucy look. You are not incorrect. Okay. Okay, my friend. Woo. <laughs> All right. What are we covering right there? So what, what should we tell our listeners to, to Google to get that? All the rooms, other voices, back photo. All right, and you will see a very saucy picture of a young Truman Capote. <laughs> I believe the photo was from Harold Halma. You'll know it when you see it. Yeah, it's he like looks pornography like he, he, looks like he could be Dorian Gray. He looks like he's barely restraining his manly bits. It's true. Barely. One other thing to note about the novel, much like how old Harper Lee wrote True into her novel... True returned the favor with this novel. After Harper won her Pulitzer Prize for that thing we did an episode on, spoilers, True was on the hunt for his own. Mm-hmm. Yeah. After all, a good friend never lets another friend shine in the light for too long. Nope. In steps a 300-word article from the New York Times dated November 16, 1959. It was about a quadruple murder. The sheriff quoted in the article said, This is apparently the case of a psychopathic killer. That is what sparked the interest in True and what led him to investigate and eventually pen the focus of this episode. Now, the murders took place in Holcomb, Kansas. Funny thing about Kansas, it's bigger than you think. (laughs) Just real quick. That is their actual tourism slogan. Kansas, it's bigger than you think. But here's the thing to think about. One, you might think that's underwhelming. However, my research led me to find out before their motto was Kansas. It's bigger than you think. It used to be... Kansas, the land of Oz, A-H-S. <laughs> you know, a play on Oz, O-Z. <laughs> wow. So they went from Kansas, the land of Oz, to Kansas, it's bigger than you think. Holy shit. <laughs> you know, not need everything to be the Sunshine State. <laughs> you moment to collect yourself. <laughs> Wow. The land of Oz. Yeah. Oz. Oz. Ah. Oz. <laughs> Maybe it's a bunch of dentists. <laughs> Kansas. Say ah. So at the time when Truman went there, it still would have been the land of Oz. Oh, jeez. Well, True was very much not a boy from Kansas or from the land of Ah. And while being a southern boy, he lost most of that having lived in the Northeast for most of his life. Well, his Biffle Harper, she was still a woman. She was still a woman. She was still a woman. Good assessment. And, well, that plays a part in what we're going to do here. At that moment in time. 
Truman looked at it and went, oh, shit. <laughs> Something makes me different from Harper. She was still a woman, and she could still talk to all those folks from Kansas, not like a northern folk. So, True and Harper set out to Kansas to get to know the people and dig behind the scenes. Generally, Harper would win over the wives of the people True wanted to speak to, and then True would get his interviews. The duo more or less got to talk to everyone in town, and as Megan will talk about, cataloged the entirety of the case from beginning to end. The novel was highly celebrated, although it did not win the Pulitzer Prize. So Harper still won that round. Oh. True said of the process, quote, I spent four years on and off in that part of western Kansas doing the research for that book and then the film. What was it like? It was very lonely and difficult, although I made a lot of friends there. I had to, otherwise I could never have researched the book properly. The reason was I wanted to make an experiment in journalistic writing, and I was looking for a subject that would have sufficient proportions. After In Cold Blood, True was more in demand than ever before. He was writing articles left and right, and perhaps more importantly, he became party celebrity numero uno. Everyone wanted to party with him. East Coast, West Coast, didn't matter. He now had a house on each coast, despite saying earlier in life, one, quote, lost an IQ point for every year spent on the West Coast. <laughs> this might have also been true of true, but that's because he was drinking a lot. He never completed another novel. In 17, not 17, not <laughs> in 1978, True was asked what would happen if he doesn't cut his drug and drinking habit, and he said, well, the obvious answer is that eventually, I mean, I'll kill myself without meaning to. True died in 1984 due to liver disease and intoxication of many, many, many intoxicants. Gore Vidal, an arch nemesis of Capote, said Capote dying was a, quote, wise career move. <laughs> Holy shit! Oh, no! That's brutal! There are two things I need to explain about True before getting into some sordid details about his death. True was fantastically a sexual lover of men. In particular, Jack Dumphy, also a writer, was True's long-term partner. The two seemed to have an on-again, off-again relationship that worked for the two of them. The two's relationship spanned from the 1950s up until True's death in 1984. The other thing is that after In Cold Blood, True and Harper kind of drifted apart. His new biffle in life became Johnny Carson's wife, Joanne Carson. In fact, it was in her house that he died. Ooh. So when he died, he was cremated. Dunphy says he received all of the ashes. Carson and others said that the will specified Carson and Dumphy split the ashes. Carson kept her share of the ashes in the room in which True died. Those ashes were stolen not once but twice. What? One time they were stolen in 1988 along with about a quarter of a million dollars worth of jewelry. Good news is, is that everything was returned about six days later on the back steps of the house. The ashes... <laughs> <laughs> and they wrapped it all up in a hose, which is like a weird like fact. So weird. You're a master of the, of the human mind and the weird and weird shit. How do you analyze that that situation? I, uh, it sounds like a shrine. It's like children building a shrine to something or whatever. Like I would want to know if, if they added like sticks and leaves and shit to it, because that's what it sounds. You know, I don't know. That's so bizarre. So the ashes were stolen a second time. This time, the thief was caught taking the ashes to a play based on True's work entitled True. <laughs> I'm going to take the ashes to go see a play. Yeah, the I think they'll enjoy it. <laughs> the thief was caught with the ashes in the theater. Oh my god. In, uh, in 2013, the producers of A Breakfast at Tiffany's Revival invited Carson and the Ashes to the show. <laughs> Carson declined for herself and the Ashes. 
And the ashes. The ashes might have wanted Did to she go. use it like a puppet? <laughs> oh, my God. <laughs> she just said, no, yeah. me and the ashes are not going to get on the plane to come to uh, the breakfast of Tiffany's revival. Bring your plus one. We have Truman's, plans. Truman's ashes. So in case everyone doesn't know, I didn't mention it earlier. The, the reason why it's breakfast of Tiffany's, Truman wrote the uh, short story. Well, uh, yeah, yeah, I guess you didn't explicitly say yeah, that. He, he wrote the novella. In Dumpy's side of the tale, Dumpy passed away in 1992 and was supposedly buried with all of True's ashes. Which is the true tale of the ashes? Who knows? The end. Gosh. Yeah. That is wild. It is. I mean, how would you know? Legit. Like, okay, my dad just died and we got his ashes. And it's not like they're labeled. I checked the container to make sure like it was my dad's name on the outside of the container. But legit, inside, it's not like... How do you know? Those are Truman's ashes, all right. But I'm saying you add like a handful of kitty litter and you're like, look, I have twice as many ashes now. (laughs) (laughs) Oh my God. (laughs) I'll see you in hell. It's fine. Bringing the two of you together was a bad idea. Well, not to be too morbid, but from my understanding, (laughs) I've never never seen an urn or a bunch of ashes myself. I believe they leave it a little chunky, like they leave like identifiable bits of bone in there. That's what I'm saying. Kitty litter. That's what it's like. Mm. There you go. Kate has first-hand experience and can tell you. (laughs) I literally do. We just scattered my dad's ashes like two weeks ago. So you should have kept some of it, sent it off to 23andMe, and see if it comes back with a match to you. Jesus Christ. Oh my god. All right. Let's move on, maybe. (laughs) Wait, 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 wait. No, you said there were sorted details. Well, that's pretty sorted. People were stealing his ashes. That's fairly sorted. Okay, I guess. Okay, I Uh, guess. She wants worse. I, I get, you know what? For Odo Lit class, it's sorted. Okay. <laughs> wow. Okay. By our standards. Well, I mean, in this other woman, she's walking around with the ashes and just keep it in the room where he dies. Like, this is Truman's room. Ugh, that is and people so invite creepy. her and the ashes out on dates. That is really weird. Wow. Which must mean, however she acts around the ashes, people thought this was a possibility. She would want to go out with the ashes herself. That they're a, they're a package deal. I bet he never pays. <laughs> I, I loathe to bring this up, but... I love to bring it up. You mentioned something about Pitbull having something of Truman Capote's. Oh, he might have some of the ashes. Who knows? Oh, okay. You were just... <laughs> I, thought, I, I thought you were about to drop some, like, uh, wild shit on me, but no. <laughs> Maybe Pitbull was the one who stole the ashes. Maybe. Dale, indeed. Look, it's me and Bulldog. Pitbull and Bulldog. Oh, A God. limited event. Hey everybody, it's Megan. Hope you're enjoying this trip down Crime Alley, which is the the name of a a dangerous crime street, I guess. I don't know, I didn't really think that one through. This episode is brought to me in part by our wonderful, beautiful, amazing patrons, of which we don't have any new ones to announce for this episode, and I'm definitely not going to internalize that to mean that I'm a bad person and a terrible failure. Nope. But if you're not, a member of the Ono Lit Class Patreon, you should be. Because while I kind of mentioned it in the break for the last episode, uh, this is our last episode before we go on a hiatus. Uh, we're going to take a little break for the month of July, and we're going to come back at some point in early August. Don't worry about it. We'll let you know. We'll keep you updated on them social medias. But in the meantime, Patreon is still going to be getting content in the form of bonus episodes a special Let's Play video series that we dropped a trailer for a couple days ago, and and maybe even a live stream or two, you know? I don't know. It's a crazy world out there. And even barring that, you should become a patron anyway, because we've got, like, 
a whole bunch of bonus content up on there now in the form of minisodes and videos and other kinds of random stuff. You can also vote on what episodes we do next and depending on what level you pledge at you can get stickers bookmarks posters t-shirts and our undying love forever and you can do all of those things at patreon.com slash onolickclass so remember what they say absence makes the heart grow fonder and you could spend this break getting really really fond of us <laughs> okay you can get, you get back to the episode now Okay, so before we get to the main action of the story, I feel like it's necessary to point out some of the, the, the framework. So not only is it a non-linear narrative that like jumps back and forth, it's also got multiple narrators, which is sort of weird. There's like the main omniscient narrator that is essentially Capote, although it's not written in his voice or anything like that. Like there's no, and then I, Truman Capote, went and did xyz he talks about the journalist yeah there's there's no first person narration from him but then we also get scenes narrated from the perspective of various people involved in the events including one of the murderers uh because of these shifts of form and style some scholarly types claim that it's technically a postmodern work and ugh, i don't even want to deal with that shit so let's let's get started let's roll the book opens with a moody description of sad isolated rural kansas Land of Oz. <laughs> ah. Oz. He's not a realtor, for sure. Like, there are not people flocking to this town based on his description. No. Once the scene is set, we meet the Clutter family. Herb is a wealthy wheat farmer with a depressed wife named Bonnie and two teenage kids, Nancy and Kenyon. They're fairly boring, but all-around nice people and well-respected in the small town of Holcomb. After that, the scene cuts to Perry Smith, a young man having breakfast in a cafe 400 miles away. We learn that Perry is physically disfigured with crushed up legs from an old motorcycle accident and is in pain pretty much all the time. He's at the cafe waiting to meet with former prison pal Dick Hickok, who says he's got a sweet crime planned that will get them lots of money. Perry plans on running off to Mexico afterward. He's got grand plans. Until the clutters all get murdered, Capote regularly swaps back and forth between the family and their killers in the time leading up to the actual event. We shoot back to Nancy Clutter, who's confiding to her friend Susan with her current, you know, biggest problem, that she's dating a boy named Bobby Rupp, but she can't tell her dad because they're Methodists and Bobby's Roman Catholic. My God. They're God. They're God. <laughs> the only important thing we get from this is that Nancy is very sweet and beloved by everyone, which will be important to keep in mind when she dies a horrible, terrible death, because then you will be very sad. Back at the cafe, Dick finally shows up with hunting gear and a shotgun that he stole from his dad. Dick lives with his parents as part of his parole, but left the house like, Hey, Mom and Dad, me and one of the guys I was in prison with are gonna have a fun sleepover in the woods or something. Don't question it. If anyone asks for me, I'm definitely not off committing crimes. Okay, bye. And I'm gonna go get money from my sister up in Fort Scott, and that's really what's going on. Don't ask. Thanks. <laughs> then, uh, back to the clutters for what is essentially just some dramatic irony and intense foreshadowing with Bonnie being depressed because Bonnie had, like, this intense postpartum depression that kind of never went away and feeling like her children don't need her and that she's like a ghost it's like it's really said that she feels like a ghost and it's like truman must you 
Right. That was a really weird little interaction between her and this girl that learned how to bake a cherry pie. Like That's true. She says it to like a small girl. <laughs> so this like relative stranger and the, the little girl is probably freaked out for life. Like she gave me a little fan that only cost a penny and sent me away with permanent scars. And then she died the next day. And she died in the day. Yeah. I mean, it's an odd book. He, Truman does not understand the, as much as he brought Harper Lee along, he does not understand the feminine mind in the 1950s in Kansas, for sure. Like he, he just he talks about how perfect and br- and brittle women are. Yes, you know whether it's Nancy or her mother, they're just you know they're either perfect or they're falling apart, and there's really nothing in the middle. They're not actually like human. Well, because they're they'll, they'll, then they're dead. So like, who cares? Why give them human personalities? Yeah, first they're female, then they're dead. It's fine. Go. <laughs> it's great. Back to the murder boys. Capote makes sure to tell us that Dick is super ugly because of a car accident and he looks quote as though his head had been halved like an apple then put together a fraction off center which is a pretty great line and after looking up his picture it's is pretty accurate he's, he's got a weird face yeah the face only a blind mother could love right yeah that yeah. one <laughs> dick spe- specifically picked the clutters ahead of time like this isn't a random thing they are driving towards holcomb with the intent of breaking into the clutters house specifically Along the way, they buy some road trip essentials, snacks, slurpees, rope, gloves, Slim Jims, etc. And the, the fucking nun thing. Can we talk about the nuns for just a second? We can't because I actually didn't mention the nuns. <laughs> so they buy all the shit, right? Like a murder road trip 101 kind of deal. Hunting vests and gloves and all of the things. And they get in an argument in a store about whether putting regular old stockings over their head will not adequately disfigure their faces to prevent people from from recognizing them, although they're planning on leaving no witnesses anyway. So they decide they need black stockings, that somehow black stockings will hide their visage better than regular stockings. But they can't find them in the, the first store that they go to. So first they decide, okay, don't bother. And then instead, and I'm not sure how you get from A to B, but option B is... We're going to stop at a convent and we're going to ask one of the nuns for her stockings so that we can adequately commit this crime. (laughs) I'm like, oh my, okay. (laughs) Yeah, no, this is our, this is our first of many tip-offs that these two are fucking idiots. They just wanted to get their freak on and they wanted a reason for it, you know? Perry is the one who's like, I want those good black stockings because, like, that's how that's how home invasion and robbing works, right? And Dick's like, we're going to murder everyone. We don't really... Okay, fine. fine. Let's go ask I'm going to go nuns. ask a nun for her stockings. <laughs> Even though nuns are bad luck. By the way, nuns are bad luck. Okay. Nuns are bad luck. The first of many very dumb decisions. Back to the earlier point. Yeah, they're going to kill the victims, but everyone in heaven's watching. You got to put on a good show. God's always judging. Ah, Sky Daddy. They want to get 10 out of 10. The Russian judge is hard to please. They always say you got to stick the landing. I mean, God God can see through regular stockings, but black stockings, God's flummoxed. He's just like, I mean... It's like Superman and lead. (laughs) Well, because he's not allowed to sexually objectify the nuns. That's why the nuns wear the black stockings. Guy can't see their yams. We are all going to hell. (laughs) I'll see you there. It's fine. No, but seriously, like, if I think about a nun, I don't get, I don't even, like, get to black stockings when I think about the characteristics of a nun. I think that's sweet puss. (laughs) Oh, my God. (laughs) 
<laughs> I'm saying. Like, I go through a I lot. Swear to God. At least, I mean, I well, I go through more of these. She's not using the bits and pieces. But still, like, I would think about an unsex life before I think about her stockings. I really would. Okay, okay, that's fair. So we get more accidental foreshadowing from the townsfolk about how Herb Clutter is just like this great guy. He's confident. He's a good people person. And one woman says something to him about how like they can't imagine him ever being in a situation that he can't talk himself out of. Wink, wink. I mean, the nudging. Okay, Capote, like we, we get it. It's funny because he's going to be murdered later. Like how, how much longer are you going to do this? And Capote responds to me from, from beyond the grave by the next showing Herb Clutter on this, the last day of his life, taking out a life insurance policy on himself with a double indemnity, which means double payment in the case of accidental death. You know, like murder. <laughs> yeah, to the point where he, they haven't even had time to cash the check yet when the murder happens. Nope. So the subtlety, it burns. It burns. Yes. Meanwhile, we learned that that apparently, uh, apparently, ah, I'm sorry. Uh, the only reason that Perry agreed to join Dick in in the dark destination of this murder road trip was that he really needed a ride to Kansas, and this gave him a way to get there because he wanted to meet former cellmate there named Willie J. And Willie J. believes that Perry has like this deeper spiritual worth and can like turn his life around and I'm not as optimistic as Willie J not just because I I know what happens later but because surely there are easier ways to hitch a ride to Kansas that don't involve murdering an entire family like spring for a fucking bus ticket my god ass or grass Meg everybody Everybody pays pays. ass grass or murder (laughs) or murder once they get to Kansas City, though, Will- Willie J's already gone. He's already fucked off. And so Perry's like, well, I guess I'm fully committed to this now. And in fact, just to uh, reassure Dick that he's totally on board and not getting cold feet, he reminds Dick of the time he beat a man to death with a bicycle chain. So he's definitely awful. He's DTM. Down to murder. So the Cutters go to sleep for the last time as Dick's car pulls into the driveway. And that's it. Yeah, that's right, true crime fans. Capote's got you by the blue balls now. No gory details for you. Instead, he's gonna end you by skipping ahead to the next morning, where everyone in uh, Holcomb is wondering why the clutters aren't at church, not realizing that they are currently communing with the good lord in a significantly more permanent fashion. So that, that is one thing, you know, talking about tragedy porn and things like that, that he doesn't immediately go like, and here's the blood. He's just like, ah, ah, ah. No, no. Well, but... He does get there. He does. No, he absolutely does get there. But no, for sure, there's a, this jarring back and forth that were Capote a podcaster, that's when he would get the irate emails. Yep. <laughs> Finally, some concerned neighbors get into the house and they discover her, Bonnie, Kenyon, and Nancy bound, gagged, and shot. The whole town is shook up and, and doesn't really know kind of how, how to react. Except Bob Johnson, the insurance salesman, who's like, wait, do I... Do I have to pay this out now? Like he, like you said, he didn't have time to cash the check yet. Like, do I have to pay this out? I, I love that Capote included that detail and also like, wow, Bob Johnson. <laughs> That's immortalized forever. But he does. He does actually do it. And at the same time, the remaining uh, grown-up clutter children, Ivana and Beverly, and a good chunk of their extended family come to town after receiving the news. Meanwhile, 400 miles away, again, at that same moment, Perry is sleeping like a sociopathic baby, and Dick is back at his parents' house, playing it cool and probably being like, Hey, don't look at the truck of my car! And if you do, don't ask about the bloody ropes. It's nothing. I'm holding them for a friend. 
Gotta tie up some deer. <laughs> Just found them at the side of the road. It's fine. It's a good thing I had the gun because they tried to attack me and I shot them. Yep. The ropes. The ropes. Dangerous ropes. I saw them and yes. I went, ah. <laughs> we are in Kansas after all. And now there are some murders that need solving. So the Kansas Bureau of Investigation assigns its best and brightest to the task. You know, re- relative to Kansas. I'm sorry, Kansas listeners. We're, we're bagging on you a lot. <laughs> we're bagging on your state. <laughs> When you're doing the whole Kansas thing, you know who's from Kansas is sort of the original true crime dude in television documentaries as well, Bill Curtis. No idea. Who is a big deal, American justice. So there's something about Kansas. There's just something about Kansas, I'm saying. Oh, that should be the new thing. (laughs) There's Kansas. There's something about it. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) What's wrong with Kansas? (laughs) What's wrong with Kansas? It's a joke that no one will get. (laughs) What's wrong with Kansas? (laughs) At some point, you got to watch this sketch uh, where Bill Hader hosts a Lifetime Channel game show, and it's called What's Wrong with Tanya? It is extremely funny, but that's how he says it. It's like, let's find out what's wrong with Tanya. (laughs) (laughs) Poor Tanya. So these men are led by Agent Alvin Adams Dewey, who Capote lets us know is very cool and heroic looking. He's all lean and square jawed and just, you know, good red blooded American male kind of shit. He was friends with the family and vows to find the killers, even if it takes the rest of his life. Which isn't really a great vow, like, if you think about it, I mean? You know, like, shouldn't it be more of, like, I'll stop at nothing till I find them? I feel like it just makes you sound like a bad detective, that it might take the entire rest of your life to solve the case. Depends on how long the rest of his life is. True. So, uh, the brutal murders quickly become national news, drawing reporters and journalists from all over the country, including a tiny, flamboyant, fabulously gay one, although he's not specifically mentioned. Dewey makes a point of avoiding them, well, most of them, but we'll address this later, and holds himself up with all his notes and clues to try to start figuring things out, which is complicated because there doesn't seem to be any motive. Everyone liked the clutter's okay, and it couldn't have been a robbery because whoever did it didn't take any valuables with them. We'll get there. In the meantime, Perry's driving Dick crazy, reading all about the murders in a bunch of newspapers, and he's paranoid that they left something behind that will get them caught. Dick thinks Perry's being a shitty baby, and to get back at him, Perry just says the name Floyd, and and Dick gets pissed off and says, like, you know what, getting caught and going back to jail might even be worth it, because I I would have the chance to kill Floyd, and we'll we'll learn why later, just hold it in for now. More of the shadowing has been forward. (laughs) Shadowing has been thoroughly forward. We get the clutter's funeral, and and the town being all shell-shocked, and it's like, you know, oh, the innocent days of leaving all your doors unlocked, and your pants down, and your bathroom door open are over, and neighbors can no longer trust each other. And, and people start like moving out because they just can't stay there anymore. So in that way, he does kind of talk about the effect it has on the town. Like it fucking ruins the, oh, what's the name of that? The Andy Griffith show town? Mayberry. Yeah, yeah. That, that, that like Mayberry, you know, folksy kind of feel. Well, that's the thing. So he does the immediate sort of shocky, they, they don't know how to cope with it bullshit, but he doesn't stay with the ripple effects that go out in a bigger sense. And he stays with the murderers. In their ripples. That's true. He's, he spends way more time in the murderer's ripples. So white fight happens because of the two M's, murder or minorities. You are not wrong. It's true. So Capote then devotes a considerable amount of time to following Dick and Perry around as they flee Kansas and head towards Mexico. Perry has a moment of like, wow, we murdered four people. We must be kind of fucked up, huh? And Dick's like, speak for yourself. I'm perfectly normal. And then he purposely runs over a dog with his car. 
That's not a joke. That's just what happens in that sequence. That dog might have had rabies. Yeah, might have had it coming. Then we get a lot of backstory about Perry's childhood, which was full of abuse and neglect, and we learn that most of his other siblings have all killed themselves. We're told that Perry is very sensitive, and everyone in his life seems to think that after getting paroled, he really could have turned things around instead of immediately joining another ex-con in a plot to murder an entire family. Whoops. Especially when part of the criteria of his parole were stay the fuck out of Kansas. Which actually, yeah, that may be another motto, is stay the fuck out of Kansas. <laughs> Kansas, stay the <laughs> fuck out of it. <laughs> I don't know how you pour on Kansas, there's way more states. I know, there are, but it's just really fun to bag on Kansas right now. Capote spends more than 20 pages on Perry's backstory and what a special boy he is. And you could kind of decide on whether there are reasons for that, you know, because we had that whole rumor that Capote was like super into Perry. Uh, but on the other hand, there is something to be said, you know, in terms of examining it sociologically about like, here's this guy who had literally everything stacked against him since birth that he's making this or trying to make this statement about nature versus nurture and the way society kind of abandons people who grow up in like poverty and terrible situations and the foster system and all that stuff. But also, he really thinks Perry's pretty. It's it's tough. Well, that, that's the thing is he, he really dwells a lot on like masculinity and the depths of it and what makes you a man and what what it takes to be hard and strong and a dick and all of the things. But he doesn't quite commit. You know, he does a lot of description without a lot of depth. He does a lot of building up in terms of Perry didn't have any choice because his childhood was so difficult and what are we going to do and poor baby. And then he makes a big deal out about how Perry made some very conscious decisions to do what he did because he had a job and I think it was, was it Oregon or Idaho or? Idaho, I think. Yeah, but he's out there and then he makes several choices and, you know, whether it's I'm going to go join this crime or I'm going to go try and meet my buddy or, you know, all of these things where, again, Capote doesn't commit is it nature? Is it nurture? True. Yeah. He's not really out to push any sort of argument just to be like, it's there. Yeah. I feel like he stays on the surface when it comes to, did he have any choice in the matter or was he just bad? Right. And I think that's when you're dealing with true crime, like that's a really important fence that you need to get on. You make a decision. So in the meantime, Dewey's got fuck all on this case and he scours the house for clues and the best he can come up with is the killer must have been someone the family knew very well and their motive was revenge against Herb Clutter. Because reasons. Nail it. Ten ten detective work. Meanwhile, Tweedledee and Tweedledum run out of money in Mexico and come up with the fantastic plan to just go back to Kansas. Can't see what's like. What could possibly go wrong with that? You're back to another logo, right? Kansas. What could possibly go wrong? <laughs> and Dick Dick's just like, yeah, like we basically did the perfect crime. And like, where's the last place someone's gonna look for murderers? Right in the place where they did the murdering. It, it's genius. And while we're there, we'll pass some bad checks, and I'll write my actual legal name on them because this is a very smart thing to do. A couple of criminal masterminds right here. But enough about them for now. It's time to learn about this Floyd dude from before. His full name is Floyd Wells, and at the start of the third section of the book, Floyd is serving time in the Kansas State Penitentiary, reading a newspaper article about the clutter murders and realizing he has severely fucked up. You see, before he landed in jail for theft, Floyd had done some work for Herb and thought he was a generous boss and a good dude all around, which I guess is why he kept bragging to his cellmate at the time, a Mr. Dick Hickok, about how Clutter had a big ol' safe full of cash in his house, just with, like, tons of money. And Dick was like, cool, I'm gonna take that money and murder them. 
And Floyd was like, <laughs> yeah, sure you will. Like, JK, lol. And then Dick did, in fact, do that. And now it's oopsie daisy accessory to murder. Floyd confesses to the prison deputy, not because he feels bad, but because he learns there's a thousand dollar reward being offered for tips or leads. Just, just a great guy. Dewey hears the confession, gets Dick and Perry's mug shots, and that very same night sends one of his men named Nye, which I assume can only be referring to a young and dashing Bill Nye the science guy, to Dick's parents' house to interrogate them. And only to learn they have no idea where he is, but they, they sure are worried about him. And also Nye notices the 12-gauge shotgun that Dick stole for the murder and then put back before leaving and is just like, hmm, this seems significant. Yeah, my shadow again has been forward. <laughs> for that shadow. So... Dewey's showing, like, Dick and Perry's pictures to shopkeepers in Kansas City, and a few of them are just like, wait, that's the asshole that keeps writing bad checks. Like, good job, my man. Nye keeps traveling around learning more about Dick and Perry, but mostly Perry, again. We, we interview Perry's estranged sister, we get more long flashbacks that I'm skipping over, and Dewey is convinced that, like, Perry and Dick are the real culprits, even though some of the investigators think Floyd's confession can't be trusted. He keeps a tight lid on these developments, though, because he wants the killers to think they've escaped and slip up and do something stupid, like, I don't know, come all the way back to Kansas from Mexico and pass bad checks while they're there. Like that? Yeah, yeah, like that. Eventually, a pissed-off recipient of one of the said bad checks takes down the license plate number on Dick's car and reports him. Unfortunately, these two dipshits managed somehow to evade the cops and escape all the way to Miami Beach, only to once again try coming back to fucking Kansas! Because they just can't stay away. Kansas, you just can't stay away. <laughs> you gotta get those ahs. Florida's boring. No ahs around here. No, no ahs to be had. And they are arrested in Las Vegas the day before New Year's Eve. So Dick and Perry are interviewed separately, and Dick thinks he's just being caught. Like, it's just because of the checks. And so he admits to it. He's like, oh, that's me. Pass those bad checks. Don't give a shit. 420 blaze it YOLO. And Bill Nye, the science FBI, says like, uh, no, this is about all the murder. And Dick tries to be like, well, I don't, I don't know, what, what murder? What are you talking about? And uh, they're like, well, it sucks for you because you left a live witness at the scene. To which Dick responds with, no way, we couldn't have left a witness. We were very careful to murder everyone because he's just so stupid. He's so stupid. <laughs> it's easy, though, to catch people up like that. All you got to do is find, like, the one thing that they're most worried about. For instance, leaving somebody alive. But, you know, no witnesses, no witnesses. And then you say, like, hey, you went and left a witness. It's easy to catch a narcissist up in moments like that. Good to know. Meanwhile, Dewey interviews Perry, who claims they were just out drinking that night. But, you know, Dick totally rolls over on him and claims that they definitely did the murders, but actually Perry killed everyone. Dick Dick was just there. I had the popcorn. I was just popcorn, popcorn. Yeah. It was fine. <laughs> Finally, Perry also comes clean and delivers his version of the events at the Clutter House from his own perspective, which means that book readers can finally unclench their sphincters because it's time for all the fucked up death shit. <laughs> Perry confirms that their goal was to rob Herb Clutter's safe and that he hadn't really meant to kill anyone right up until he killed them. He says he killed the men and that Dick killed the women and that Dick had also planned to rape Nancy before shooting her, but Perry wouldn't let him. What a gentleman. He's a white knight. This rescues all of his character flaws right there. Yep. You, oh, you he wanted killed? to get a date with her. What's that? He wanted to get a date with her. Be like, hey, baby. See, I'm sticking up for your rights. Oh, my God. I hate you so much. So the, the capper to this whole affair is that the whole safe stuff with money thing was bullshit, which is why Dick was so angry at Floyd. All told, these two fucknuts murdered four people and left the house with 50 bucks. And a pair of binoculars and a, a portable radio. <laughs> 
But they left all the other fucking valuables behind. Uh-huh. That was the wildest thing to me. Because I did see, I, I'll talk about it. I saw the movie Capote, but I don't remember it super well. And so, you know, I just think of this book, having not read it, as just like these horrible, brutal, cold, calculating killers. And while they were horrible and brutal, they were also just dumb as all fuck. Stupid. I, you know, I mean, good. That's better that you would like them stupid. Yeah, better, you know, that, that helps catch them. I mean, it's super common. You, the, the average IQ in prison is lower than on the street because if they're smart, they don't get caught. That's fair. How you feeling now about, like, locking your doors? Like, shit. <laughs> it's not a good feeling, but it's true. So now they've been officially properly arrested and jailed in the Finney County Courthouse where Perry, no lie, spends his time keeping a diary, drawing pictures of flowers and also Jesus, and adopting wild squirrels and giving them cute names. This is how you get, like, those teen girls who wrote, like, Ted Bundy love letters while he was in prison and shit. Like, this soft pastel mass murderer wubification shit. It's fucking weird. Hybristophilia is what it's called. Oh, I've never, never heard that. Being attracted to bad boys, effectively. People have many layers, Megan. It's, it's icky. Well, and here's the thing. They're, They're like, like onions. They are like yeah. onions. There's many platitudes. Just like Shrek. There is this whole thing of, like, Perry was also a fully realized person who was not always thinking of murder all the time, and doesn't Capote have a journalistic duty to convey that? Like, maybe, but, uh, what's Dick doing in his cell this whole time, you may ask? Dick, Dick, jerking it. Dick, who was also a fully realized person who was not always thinking of murder all the time. Dunno, who gives a shit? Not Truman Capote, that's for dang sure. So, so much for, you know, dedication to, to... journalistic objectivity <laughs> well that's what i was saying like he didn't fully realize really anybody but perry yep including the victims including the town including the surviving family members and so it's like capote i'm picking up what you're putting down yes perry gets much more characterization than literally anyone i mean have you ever looked into the eyes of that platypus he's pretty fucking charming i was waiting i was waiting with bated breath for you to make a perry the platypus reference <laughs> oh he's the best perry ever Matthew Perry sucks. Who? Matthew Perry. Matthew Perry. Oh, Perry the platypus is much better than (laughs) Matthew Perry. Yeah, between the two, for sure. So (laughs) Dewey takes over the narration, tell the readers that Perry is now refusing to sign a confession until they change it, because he's changing his story to say that he did actually kill everyone and Dick didn't. He's doing this, apparently, for the sake of Dick's mother's feelings. What an angel. What a martyr. Just a sweet, sweet boy. He's misunderstood. Yeah. So while they're awaiting trial, Dick and Perry start to get real stir-crazy. They entertain ideas of escaping that never really amount to anything. It's taking so long because the authorities were trying to find jurors and a a venue for the trial where the crime wasn't well known. But they were having a very hard time because the murders were so publicized. So in the end, they're like, yeah, fuck it. Let's just have the trial like right here in uh, nearby Garden City with a jury that all knew the clutters. Because who gives a shit anymore? Objectivity is overrated. Kansas objectivity is overrated. <laughs> then Capote tells us about something that I imagine both of you uh, know about more than me, because RJ is a lawyer and you were a forensic psychologist, called the Monoton Rule, which sounds like fucking H.P. Lovecraft Cthulhu monster. It's similar. Very similar. You guys want to uh, kind of talk about that, because I don't know what the fuck I'm talking about with it. Basically, in short, affirmative defense. And basically what would have to be shown is that you either have no idea what your actions were doing, that like you think you're out there cutting your lawn, but instead what you were doing were cutting people's heads off with the hedge trimmer instead. 
or that you didn't understand really the ramifications of what you were doing, that it was like you didn't know the difference between good or bad with that action. And so that's kind of what you have to prove. But so that's, a, that's a lot of what I did. That's a lot, That's competence to stand trial. And there's sort of two versions of it in the States still now, but the monotony rules from the 1800s. Yeah, 1843. <laughs> and it has to do with, you know, it's it's not knowing right from wrong, not being able to work with your lawyer, not being able to understand the basic roles of people in the courtroom, you know, what a judge does, what your lawyer does, that you're not supposed to st- stand up and take a shit on your table in the middle of the court, you know, proceedings. That's what competency to stand trial is. And so when people talk about legally being sane or insane, they don't care about your diagnosis. You can have paranoid schizophrenia actively off medication and you are clinically insane, but legally sane. So I hate the wording of it. Yeah, that seems to be a lot of from what I read. That seems to be a lot of people's problem with the monoton rule. And it definitely applies to this case in particular. Oh, in particular, also, if you say, you know, like the devil made me do it, that the devil's in my head, this whole thing. You just fucking fucked yourself over because we all know devil's evil, God's good. And if you're saying the devil made you do it, you knew it was bad. If you say God made you do it, well, then maybe not so much because you thought you were doing God's good work because God's the good guy. That is wild. Yeah, so if you said the devil made you do it, mm-mm-mm, devil's the bad guy, you shouldn't have known better. I mean, to an extent, but it's really about did the person have control over their actions? Did you know right from wrong? Would you have done it in front of a cop? So the the boys are deemed under the monotony. I say boys, they were men. They were like 30 years old. They're deemed under the monotony rule as sane enough to stand trial, and so they do. They go before the court and talk about how much their lives sucked. And to be fair, Perry's life objectively sucked considerably more than Dick's. Although Dick says every bad thing he's done is the cause of getting a concussion in that car accident. And that after it happened, he got divorced, started drinking, became a pedophile. You know, the, the usual stuff that follows a concussion. In a car accident every time. And so they bring forth evidence, pictures of the scene, the bodies of the Clutter family. Floyd testifies like it's just a shit show for our hapless murderers. Afterwards, Perry's visited by a different former prison buddy who's now reformed and religious named Don Cullivan. Don is convinced that he could save Perry's soul, but Perry's like, nah, I, I murdered all of them. I'm not even sure why I did it. And Don's like, but, but you feel bad about it, right? And Perry's like, no, why do you ask? And he tells Don that he and Dick even joked about it right after. And Don's starting to have second thoughts about this whole thing. And Perry says, hey, I mean, soldiers who kill people in war don't lose sleep over killing people. They even get medals for it. And breaking into a family's house and killing them all is exactly the same situation, obviously. Then he makes the slightly less bonkers point that all the citizens of the county who are super horny to see Perry and Dick executed are also 100% down with and presumably have no remorse about the idea of murdering a couple people. And I mean, there's still a lot to pick apart there, but it's better than the soldier thing, at least. (sighs) He's an idiot. Perry is just an idiot. I mean, professional opinion. They're both real dumb. Yeah. (laughs) My professional opinion, he's an idiot. Then we get a bit where the court psychiatrist is conflicted because per the monoton rule, the two men know what they did was wrong and so he can't elaborate any further because it's irrelevant. He just says like, yep. But even so, he he has a couple of like things that, you know, he's not sure about because he's pretty sure Dick has like severe brain damage, which might explain some things. And he suspects that Perry suffers from intense paranoid schizophrenia, although he isn't able to evaluate them fully because that's not in what he's here to do. It's it's, exactly, exactly. (laughs) That's what I'm saying. Forensic work is boring. Clinical psych is fun, but forensic work is frankly boring. So there's a lot more grandstanding and trial antics, but in the end, the jury deliberates less than an hour before declaring them guilty and sentencing them to death. 
Harry is sad because his pet squirrel will miss him. I bet Nancy Clutter would find that sad too if she hadn't been fucking shotgunned to death. So then things get real tedious because they get a stay of execution to get an appeal for a new trial. And so things drag on for quite some time. Perry does a hunger strike. Dick tries to uh, start a letter writing campaign. Two years pass, they get another trial, it lasts all of 10 seconds. Then they're back on death row for another three years, until finally, April 14th, 1965, six years after the murders, Perry and Dick are hanged. Dewey recounts that watching Dick hang didn't really bother him at all, but when Perry did, he looked like a pathetic little wounded animal, and Jesus Christ, Capote, like, can we not? Please, can we not? The final scene of the book entails Dewey several years later visiting his mother's grave. By happenstance, Nancy's old friend Susan is there, and she tells Dewey that life has gone on in the ensuing years, and that she's in college now, and Nancy's sweetheart Bobby Rupp eventually married someone else. Dewey watches her leave and wonders what Nancy would look like now if she had lived, and then he walks home. The end. It's an odd ending. It really, it really it is. is. It's a super odd ending, and here's the big thing about it. It's a completely 100% made up. Despite years and years of Capote insisting to the contrary, a lot of this is fiction, which I think is fairly well known at this point, but was quite a bit, you know, controversial at the time. So yeah, that final scene, completely fucking made up. Even Capote finally admitted that eventually. And I, I get why, like, you need something to kind of tie things up, put some kind of thematic bow on everything. But not necessarily all the fudging of facts is for the sake of, like, manufacturing drama or other reasons that, like, biopics or other dramatizations will change shit for, like, thematic reasons. Sometimes he, he just got shit wrong. Like, there's a great quote from a New Yorker article that's called Capote's Co-Conspirators uh, by Patrick Radden Keefe. And this quote contains an even better quote within it. Quote, Capote didn't help matters by announcing that he found the presence of a tape recorder or notebook intrusive when conducting interviews and preferred to rely on his own recollection of what his sources said, which doesn't seem terribly reliable. Sometimes he said he had 96% total recall, and sometimes he said he had 94% total recall. George Plimpton joked after his death. He could recall everything, but he could never remember what percentage recall he had. That's awesome. Also, 4% of what he forgot was the other 2%. (laughs) So then we get into these things of, like, people speculating about Capote's relationship with Smith. You know, was he kind of in love with him? A A theory that the descriptions of the dude within the book definitely lends itself to? Or was he cozying up to him in an attempt to create a better story to, you know, get inside Perry's head so he could use that stuff in the book? Neither option is super great. (laughs) And it's not accurate. Like, he didn't succeed in getting inside Perry's head. It was very much like this romantic projection of an anti-hero. Yeah. Perry's icky. Perry's very icky. And more interesting to me, personally, while a lot of people speculate about that relationship and how, you know, it influenced the narrative, we've got way more proof to go on of how Dewey's relationship with Capote led to certain complementary fabrications. So in the, the same New Yorker article, it says, one person who may have been aware of this dynamic was Detective Alvin Dewey. We now know that the plain-spoken investigator was remarkably forthcoming with Capote. He opened his case files to the visiting writer, gave him access to the diary of Nancy Clutter, including the entry written on the night of her death. When locals were reluctant to speak with Capote, Dewey intervened. Nancy's boyfriend, Bobby Rupp, who was the last person to see the clutters alive, gave an interview, quote, because Al Dewey advised me to. From New York, Capote wrote letters to the the detective, calling him Foxy and Dearhearts, and then demanding one document after another. 
As a consequence, according to the journal, Dewey was rewarded with a slight but significant exaggeration of his investigative prowess. The most glaring discrepancy between Capote's account of the big break in the case and the reality captured in the files comes down to timing. In Capote's telling, like I had said, Dewey sent his investigator Nye to the Hickok house on the night he received the tip to let go question them and stuff. In reality, he waited five whole days. And according to the official investigation, even after Floyd identified Hickok as the killer, Dewey obstinately clung to the erroneous theory of his own that the murderer was some local with a grudge. So because Dewey, like, was so helpful in getting Capote access to all this stuff, Capote paints him as this, you know, much smarter, more um, proactive guy than, you know, he really was. One of the things in the, the book that just doesn't, doesn't ring true, like, remotely, is, so Herb Clatter is killed in the basement, his throat is cut, and then he's shot. I think he's shot. Uh, but his throat is cut twice, one by each guy, that's the theory. And he's found on top of a mattress box, like a cardboard box that a mattress came in. And they're in the middle of a, the interrogation scene, and Perry says so, that this is why the the mattress boxes on the floor is to give him this little bit of comfort because they march him down to the basement and there's no safe anywhere in the house and so they lock they tie him up and they leave him there where they go check the house and perry says like i i felt bad about just having him lay down on a cold concrete floor so i got a, i saw this big cardboard box and i put it on the floor for him to lay on and there's this moment in the in the book where there's like this significant pause and eye contact between investigators because Dewey somehow knew that it was for his comfort and nobody else believed it and now they know and I'm like bullshit like I I said it out loud I'm you know I'm reading it because I, I reread it over the past couple of weeks and I said it out loud like bullshit and here's what's fun is I was reading it while well, I was I was recently in the hospital with pneumonia so I'm <laughs> I'm sitting quietly in my room I have two roommates who are like a thousand years old each and so I'm mostly behaving myself and avoiding eye contact because they wanted to talk to me about their bodily functions and so I'm reading this book and all of a sudden I burst into bullshit and both of them look at me and I'm like never mind like I didn't even <laughs> That's pretty good. So the closest Capote ever really got to admitting that in cold blood is not 100% fact, like he pretty much always claimed, is this sort of evasive little nugget here, this quote where he says, Reflected reality is the essence of reality, the truer truth. All art is composed of selected detail, either imaginary or, as in in cold blood, a distillation of reality. And that leads us to some really interesting questions about narrative journalism and ethics and objectivity and sort of the twin desires to deliver the facts, but also to tell an artful story that's engaging and interesting with a clear beginning, middle, and satisfying end. Which, oh god, means that In Cold Blood might really be a postmodern work, because it is impossible to reckon with just the text, because the story exceeds the text itself, and is all the stuff surrounding it, and god, I hate postmodernism so much. Okay, just call it a podcast then instead, because, you know, same. <laughs> Do you, either of you have anything you want to add before we kind of just run through adaptations real quick? No. Yeah. yeah. Okay. So before I start with the obvious big ones, did you guys know there's a Bastille song about Perry Smith? Because <laughs> I sure fucking didn't. Okay. Uh, 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 uh. <laughs> no, 
Because he burned the house down. It's called Four Walls, The Ballad of Perry Smith. It's on their 2016 album, Wild World. It's about Smith being on death row for five years, as well as a general meditation on the ethics of capital punishment. There's a great quote from the frontman, Dan Smith, from a live show they did in Boston right before they played this song. And it's not super relevant, but it's a very good quote. Quote, you probably have realized that we have quite a lot of incredibly depressing songs. So sorry about that. A lot of them, even if you thought they were upbeat and hadn't been listening properly, they're actually just depressing anyway. But anyway, this next song is just straight up, balls out, really depressing. Probably the most depressing thing we've ever done. So I hope you enjoy that to pump you up on this Monday evening. (laughs) (laughs) I'm sorry I missed that show now. Uh, yeah, yeah, it's true. That was in your neck of the woods. Uh, it, it reminds me, RJ, when we went to see Sufjan Stevens and he was doing uh, Carrie and Lowell, which is a very heavy album. And then uh, he broke out, and you call me on the cell phone. Well, well I was going to say, uh, prior to that, he said uh, he was going to lighten the mood with what he referred to as his murder ballad about John Wayne Gacy. <laughs> and then he played Hotline Bling by Drake. That was pretty great. <laughs> Amazing. So there's also a very stylized uh, black and white graphic novel called Capote in Kansas, which also covers sort of the whole story. And if you're not a big novel person, this is a really good way to kind of introduce yourself to the story. The art is very cool and it does a does a good job. So to the major players. In 1967, it was adapted into a film by Richard Brooks that was nominated for four Academy Awards. Brooks worked pretty closely with Capote and he was obsessed with authenticity to the point of casting actual residents from the town of Holcomb, as well as literally filming at the Clutters family farm, which seems kind of fucked up to me. This is also just two years after the two men were hanged that they're like, let's do this movie, my guys, which just seems kind of wild. He ignored studio demands to cast Paul Newman and Steve McQueen as the leads, instead going for relative unknowns, including Robert Blake as Perry Smith. And I guess Brooks had a good instinct for authenticity after all, as Robert Blake would then go on to allegedly murder his wife, or, or, or pay someone to murder his wife. Like, it's it's unclear. There were a lot of trials. and He was acquitted. Yeah, there, there are like 20 true crime podcasts that probably did an episode on it you can go listen to. So after that, in 1996, the novel was adapted into a TV miniseries starring Sam Neill as Agent Dewey, generally evil character actor Eric Roberts as Perry Smith, Goose from Top Gun as Dick Hickok, and all the way at the bottom of the cast list, a 19-year-old Canadian nobody named Ryan Reynolds as young Bobby Rupp. It's considered pretty good. But the big one is the one that came out in 2005, and was the first one to cover not just the events of the case itself, but Capote's actual involvement, and it aptly titled Capote, starring Philip Seymour Hoffman in the title role, along with Catherine Keener as Harper Lee, Chris Cooper as Agent Dewey, generally evil character actor Mark Pellegrino as Dick Hickok, and Clifton Collins Jr. as Perry Smith. Uh, Clifton's Collins Jr., most recently seen by RJ in The Mule. Ah, The Mule. He's the one in the the cowboy hat who shoots the cartel leader, Andy Garcia. Ah, shit, what a movie. (laughs) I gotta see Clint Eastwood have two threesomes. God, The Mule is a wild movie. He is a mule. Hung like a mule. Fucks like a mule. (laughs) Nope, uh, all of that is bad. So, this is a real good fucking movie. Hoffman bagged an Oscar and like a bazillion other awards for Best Actor, and he earned that shit. So, if you haven't seen that movie... He's amazing. Yeah, you're doing yourself a disservice. Like, go watch it. It's awesome. And then just one year later, 
Another adaptation was released called Infamous, which I had never heard of. And I don't think anybody else did, except you, RJ. Um, yeah, I saw it. Because, because it had the bad timing of coming out one year after Capote. Yeah, but that's Toby Jones. It does. And that's Toby Jones as Capote, which is good casting. Like, the casting is, is intense. As Daniel freaking Craig as Perry Smith, and he's unrecognizable. They, they give him, like, brown contacts, and it looks really weird. Like, he doesn't look like Daniel Craig. Lee Eyebrows Pace as Dick Hickok. Sandra Bullock. Bullock is Harper Lee, Jeff Daniels is Dewey, and Sigourney Weaver, Gwyneth Paltrow, and Isabella Rossellini as various others. So it's a, it's a pretty fucking stacked cast. Critics were pretty split on it, but the general consensus seems to be that it was good, but not as good as Capote, but that might have just been because Capote came out first. Gotta win that race. Yeah. And that's all for, for adaptations. Yeah, you because know, no one ever talks about Sharkquake. What? 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 Sharkquake? Yeah, Sharknado beat it out. <laughs> <laughs> Who can talk about Shark Quick when Sharknado came first? Exactly. Also be Shark Kane. That's a yeah, that that's a perfect equivalent to draw. Um, shark again. Geo Shark. Geo Shark. God damn it. Alright. Independent Shark. <laughs> shark has fallen. So that brings us to the part of the show that we always get to. We'll start with you, RJ. Hey RJ. What's up? In cold blood. Yep. Good or bad? I tend to like my blood warm. Creepy motherfucker. I mean, I would say good. It did uh, launch a thousand genres. (laughs) Well, no, it launched one genre, but a thousand things within the genre <laughs> it's all that face you know yeah that saucy face it that did saucy all. even face. though that saucy face was not on the back cover of in cold blood <laughs> but it was out there it was in the zeitgeist already ah people knew there that's you all you have to say about that good okay enjoyable good movies I'll, I'll go next we'll save kate for last hey megan yeah truman capote's story about the land of oz and the things that happened in him yep <laughs> ah or yeah <laughs> Well, I mean, I, I kind of end up starting biased against it because true crime is not my speed. That's not things that I really enjoy reading. I'm a big baby, but you can't ignore the parts of it that are very well written, that are effective. Ultimately, I'd rather watch the, the Capote movie or, or interviews or other stuff that has been written after the fact because I'm much more interested in Capote's story and how it intersects with the investigation and everything than the actual crime itself and whatever things it's trying to poke at with society and, and poverty and blah, blah, blah. Like, I feel like it's at least not necessarily a book that's just, look at this fucked up crime, isn't it? fucked up like it's at least trying to say a little bit more than that and i feel like a lot of true crime media today just falls into that isn't this fucked up like not just podcasts but the netflix documentaries and in reality tv and that shit I, I think the reason that in cold blood still holds people's attention apart from the obvious like true crime boom reasons is more the story around the story and this sort of wibbly wobbly line between fact and fiction involved in narrative journalism in general and like this incident in particular so even if i don't like it i think we have to acknowledge that it's good just based on the huge impact that it's had Hey, Kate. Stop. Truman Capote's in cold blood. Good or bad? I, 
you know, I, I walk that same line. It's like I have a big problem with the idea of murder porn. I've had a lot of experience sitting with both criminals and victims. And it's darker and dirtier and grittier and sadder and more pathetic. And that's what I don't think he taps into is that dark and sad and pathetic side of the whole thing. I don't know. I guess I feel like it's an excellent work for what it is, you know, for the pioneering of a, of a genre. And it's, I guess, well written if you like descriptions of scenery and men's bodies. Hey. But, but I do feel like while it hints at a lot of sociological issues and that kind of thing, it ultimately emphasizes the murderers and it glorifies the crime and kind of falls to the lowest common denominator in a lot of ways. And we're still doing that. And so I don't have a whole lot of use for that. It oversimplifies. And so like, I have a hard time with it, but objectively I can accept that it's a good book and it's a start and he's trying. He is trying. You know, and unfortunately the people who came behind him didn't build on it in a direction of I'm going to make a more accurate reflection of the horribleness of crime. And instead they went for, I'm going to make a bigger, splashier, true crime genre. And true crime, that that phrase has always bothered me because it's not. It's not a reflection of truth. Hey, Truman's Ashes. <laughs> What's your take? I read a very good book. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you, Truman's Ashes. No, that's like really fucking good analysis, Kate, and way smarter than any of the shit we ever have to offer up on the show, so we really appreciate it. And that dovetails very neatly into Kate. When you are not here with us dropping these these very good thoughts and, and opinions, what do you do? What do you even do? And where can people find you doing it? Uh, yell at my kids a lot and then otherwise I have a podcast it's called Ignorance Was Bliss and I sit in my basement and I drop like 15 episodes a week because I don't edit much but I just talk to people about my you know sort of like I started off much more true crime and I've moved away from that and sort of my goal is about talking to people and making stuff seem normal whether that is serial killers or you know sort of a daily anxiety that a lot of us live with and where do people find where do people find a thing Oh, sorry. I don't know. <laughs> Everywhere. I don't know. I just, I don't know. Ignorance was bliss. IWBpodcast.com. I'm doing a live show in Chicago on July 12th, and I'm fucking terrified. So IWBpodcast.com slash live show for details. It's 35 bucks for all the wine and beer you can drink, which is pretty good in Chicago. And by the way, we're also going to talk about crimey stuff. That sounds super awesome. It's very cool. So that will about do it for this week's episode of Ono Lit Class. If you like the things you do and you want to support us... I want to do that all the time. <laughs> if you like the things we do and you want to support us, subscribe, leave us reviews, tell your friends, tell your family, tell Truman Capote's ashes to, to check us out. Yeah, tell me. <laughs> it's what I would listen to. Tell Kansas. <laughs> Tell everyone in Kansas. Kansas, we're sorry. We love you. Listen to the podcast. You can check us out on Twitter at Ono Lit Class Pod. We're also on Facebook, Tumblr. We're on everything, all the things everywhere. And also at onolitclass.com. The next episode will be out sometime in early August because, as I mentioned in the uh, in the break, we're just taking a little baby hiatus and we will come back bigger, stronger, more powerful, and more full of literary ween jokes. But till then, I'm Megan. I'm in the land of Oz. <laughs> I'm Kate. I really am. <laughs> we love you. Bye. All right. You never done a line of bulldog? 
that sounds like a weird street drug. Yeah. That's what I'm saying. Like, it's not that fine. The ashes are not that fine, usually. You can't snort them. <laughs> oh, somebody could. Truman Capote probably could have snorted his own ashes, but that's meta. Wow. <laughs> it's like sucking your own dick. No. <laughs> no, it's like snorting your it's like snorting your own ashes. Those are totally different things. Yeah, get your shit together.